It's Wednesday, February 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In 2016, nearly 100 million eligible Americans did not cast a vote for president. These are the non-voters. The Knight Foundation has now released the results of the 100 million project, the largest survey of chronic non-voters. In a nutshell, these people are less white, less educated, poorer, younger, and more likely to be women. Yvette Alexander, Director of Learning and Impact at the Knight Foundation, joins us for why so many people choose not to vote, and if they were to vote, who would benefit the most from their turnout? Next, we'll talk about the strange world of cheerleading music. With the success of the Netflix docuseries Cheer, more people are taking a look into the world of cheerleading, and one thing that stands out is the music accompanying the high-flying routines. Gone are the days of simple rhyming chants, modern cheer squads are performing to club-like tracks full of EDM drops and laser beam samples. Cheer music still has to abide by copyright laws and music licensing, and it has spurred a whole new industry that makes original music for top cheer teams. Duncan Cooper, music journalist and former editor of The Fader, joins us for the world of cheer music. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So, you know, chronic non-voters, it's almost 100 million people, as you mentioned. And so they really span the breadth of our American society. They exist in all socioeconomic groups, all demographic groups. That being said, they do skew younger, they do skew less educated, and they do skew lower income. Joining us now is Yvette Alexander, Director of Learning and Impact at the Knight Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Yvette. Thanks for having me. We have an interesting study released from the Knight Foundation. It's called the 100 Million Project, and it's the largest survey of chronic non-voters that we have. In 2016, there was nearly 100 million eligible Americans that did not cast a vote for president. That represented about 43% of the eligible voting age population. That is a huge swath of people that do not vote And obviously, when we're talking about politics and campaigns and polls, a lot of times people talk about likely voters, you know, people that have voted in the past elections, campaigns tailored to them a lot because you want to maintain that voting base at least. But there's like half of the American people that don't vote. They say they're disengaged. There's a lot of different reasons. Yvette, tell us what we found out from this new Knight Foundation study. We found out a lot. I think that's new information, specifically in current years. So this is a landmark study, as you mentioned, over 12,000 chronic non-voters. To give you a sense, a typical political poll typically looks at anywhere between 500, maybe 1,500 respondents. And so this was really a broad effort to study a very under-understood part of the electorate and one that actually is responsible for some of the outcomes by virtue of non-participation. So some of the things that we learned were, first of all, we previously knew their demographics. This study reaffirms some of previous studies as far as what we saw for demographics. So, you know, chronic non-voters, it's almost 100 million people, as you mentioned. And so they really span the breadth of our American society. They exist in all socioeconomic groups, all demographic groups. That being said, they do skew younger. They do skew less 
educated and they do skew lower income, they're slightly more likely to be minority and a little bit more likely to be female. So that was something that we saw in terms of demographics. Other findings that I would point out have to do with a lower trust in the election system than voters. They're less engaged with news and information. And uh, while they're a little less partisan, they're still pretty divided on key issues and on President Trump. Let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned that they're a little bit less engaged with the news. So we're looking at regular voters. They actively go out and seek news. You know, they want to know about their candidate or what issues are being talked about, things like that. These non-voters either choose to stay away from it or it doesn't pop up like in their newsfeed. They're not actively seeking it. So that was an interesting moment that they're non-voters. They really just want to stay out of the system completely. I think, um, you know, news engagement ranges widely for non-voters. There are some non-voters that are fairly engaged and some very engaged with news and information. Um, they resemble voters in a lot of ways. But then on the other side, the news engagement drops off pretty sharply. And you have folks who are just kind of moderately engaged with news and then others that avoid it entirely and on purpose. I want to go back to how you guys set up this survey because you asked people a lot of questions, you know, about their media diets, social networks, income levels, everything. You guys went beyond just asking these questions. You went further into focus groups and things like that. So you were able to really drill down why they are chronic non-voters. What are some of the top reasons why these people are choosing not to vote? That's a complex question. And, you know, we definitely attempted to contribute to the insights around that by listening to non-voters tell us why they don't vote and also by comparing them with active voters on certain key political attitudes and behaviors. So when we ask directly why non-voters don't vote, there's a bunch of reasons that are given. Um, Nothing stands out as like a majority reason. But the number one reason that was given was that they simply don't like the candidates. About 20 percent a little more mentioned that they don't like the candidates, and that was the most common reason cited. Another common reason was that they felt their vote didn't matter. So that's a combination of not feeling like the election system or the government is one that they can trust, and a combination of being in a state or a district that is going to swing one particular way, and they feel like their vote's not going to make much of a difference. Going back just a little bit to how people were actively seeking out information about candidates or even issues, one of the things that came up why people don't vote also is they said there's no time for learning and deciding about what issues or the candidates. That was another thing that people felt they were just overwhelmed with the amount of news out there. And maybe that was a reason why they decided not to seek it out. I think so. You know, ballots are very long. You know, when you go in, you're not simply voting for the president, for example. There's many different elections on the ballot and candidates on the ballot, and then there's ballot issues. And so when focus groups, non-voters that felt uninformed on issues, they would say things like, I don't have the time to, you know, research all this stuff. They have other things that are competing for their time and other demands on their life. And so they're choosing to engage with those things rather than, let's be honest, consuming lots of political news is in some ways a of a time luxury. So these folks, by virtue of not being interested or by virtue of feeling like they don't have enough time to get educated, simply feel less informed. And also, I'll say that it was surprising to hear in focus groups that non-voters who felt uneducated on issues said things like, my vote would do more harm than good because I'm not educated enough or an uninformed vote is worse than not voting at all. And so that was pretty concerning to hear. That's so interesting because that plays into a lot of different things. Obviously, there's discussions about all the money 
money that Mayor Mike Bloomberg is throwing into the Democratic race right now, and even on the president's side, a lot of the money that's going into advertising. And if people aren't actively seeking these things out or don't have the time to really drill down on an issue, some of this advertising, some of these ad campaigns might really work if it pushes one of these non-voters to actually go out and vote. They might see something that they saw on a Facebook post or in TV and say, okay, cool, I'm going to vote that way. So it's an interesting dynamic how really everything kind of feeds into itself. Another question about these non-voters, if they were to vote, where would they go? It seems like their votes could be potentially up for grabs on every side. They might lean Democratic overall, but they do favor President Trump in a lot of key battleground states. That's exactly right. So, you know, it was a bit of a wash. You know, if all non-voters turned out to vote in 2020, you know, according to our survey, 30% would vote to reelect President Trump and 33% would vote for the Democratic nominee, the balance voting for a third party or they're still undecided. So that's pretty close. It's just a 3% difference between um, the Republican and Democratic nominees. But as you said, across battleground states, that differed quite a lot. So we looked at 10 different so-called swing states. And in those swing states, there were clear favorite. Trump was a clear favorite in certain swing states, including Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. One of the things that's also interesting of why a lot of people said they didn't want to vote is that they felt very disengaged from the whole process. A lot of people have been doing write-ups about your survey already. And one of the things that came up was back in the day with traditional campaigns, there was a lot of door-to-door campaigning, hey, vote for so-and-so. And there's a lot of these non-voters that feel like they're not even being engaged in the minimalist of senses. They're not even being asked to vote by a real person, and they might not see their counterparts and their neighbors voting also. So this all kind of leads to this dynamic where they don't want to vote. People, campaigns, and and everything have to connect with voters as individuals to be able to get them out there. Yeah, and I think they also need to be connecting with communities and social networks, not social media necessarily, but kind of the networks that we all belong to in society. And something that's a long-held theory in political science is, you know, this, these sorts of social network effects on voting participation. So if you are embedded in networks where people talk about voting, you see that they vote or they tell you that they voted or they plan to vote, you're more likely to vote yourself. There's a little bit of peer pressure going on in a way to be a part of the crowd. But there are large groups of Americans where that's really not the case. And that's true if you're in groups where folks are less likely to have a college degree. It's true in groups that when you move outside the professional workforce. And it's also true amongst younger people. There's not a lot of social reinforcement happening. And I just want to mention something back in response to your earlier question about the battleground states, Mm -hmm. that while there is a bit of a split between non-voters on, you know, who they would favor, that it all depends on who's mobilized for 2020. One of the last questions I have here is, okay, so we're talking about these non-voters. They feel disengaged. They're not part of this process. Sometimes they don't feel like they fit in here. They don't like candidates. There's a lot of issues going on, but what issues are important to them? I think immigration and healthcare still were some of the top issues that were important to these non-voters also. That's correct. I mean, there's not an issue that stood out for a majority of non-voters. Immigration was the top issue mentioned, but again, it was only 19% of non-voters citing immigration as a top issue. 
So again, a lot of that has to do with the part of the country you're in. You know, if there's conservative media happening in your orbit, you're more likely to say immigration. The next most common issue that non-voters cited was jobs and the economy, healthcare, gun control. So there starts to be a distribution amongst non-voters that are more on the left-leaning side of politics, amongst a variety of issues, racism and race relations among them. Whereas on the right, with more conservative-leaning non-voters, immigration is kind of the dominant issue. in their minds. Yeah, I mean, it's just a very interesting survey in this time where politics seems very polarized and the people on the left are voting that way and the people on the right are voting that way. It really seems like this swath of possible voters, these non-voters that choose not to participate regularly, they really need to be brought into it for people to start making really good headway. So it's just an interesting look into the non-voter Yvette Alexander, Director of Learning and Impact at the Knight Foundation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. By maybe the 1950s or 60s, it starts to get like standardized. There starts to be pyramids and some of the familiar moves of today. By the time the 80s get around, ESPN broadcast starts broadcasting cheerleading competitions for the first time. Joining us now is Duncan Cooper, music journalist and former editor-in-chief at The Fader. Thanks for joining us, Duncan. Hey, happy to be here. We're going to be talking about a fun story here. Inside the strange, insular world of cheerleading music, Netflix just had its docuseries called Cheer. You know, it just came out not too long ago, and I got a chance to see a few of the episodes. And really, any time I see some type of cheerleading competition, like on cable while I'm flipping the channels, I always stop to see it for a little bit, just because it is a pretty crazy sport being tossed up in the air. I know it's dangerous. People get hurt all the time. But the music, the music has kind of taken on its own world now. And it started off as mixtapes and things like that. But now there's full-on companies devoted to making original music and even covers of other music to be folded into these routines. So Duncan, tell us a little bit about cheerleading music. Yeah, I think so. The history of cheerleading goes back all the way to the 19th century when it was you know, a bunch of guys on the sidelines of a football game saying funny little chants. By maybe the 1950s or 60s, it starts to get like standardized. There starts to be pyramids and some of the familiar moves of today. By the time the 80s get around, ESPN broadcast starts broadcasting cheerleading competitions for the first time. And you start to see this just like exponential growth of the sport in terms of how many people are doing it, how technical it gets, the risk that these athletes put themselves at. And a big thing, too, was the music. The music gets crazier and crazier. By the 80s, people would play a little clip of Eye of the Tiger and maybe then some sort of like electronic dance music of the time. Like you mentioned today, there's entire companies sometimes employing like 20 people working full-time on creating songs that are used entirely for cheer routines. And one of the cool things is every team wants to be unique, and that means every season they want a brand new song. So it's good work if you can get it to be a musician that's making one song for one team a season, and next season they're going to come back wanting more. Right. You mentioned kind of the evolution of the music. I wanted to play a little clip. This is from a cheer routine from the 80s, something that we found in your article. So just listen to it right now, and then we'll play kind of something more contemporary. Dad, a handstand on his arm. 
So so pretty uh, straightforward. Like you said, something kind of just a nice little dance track, something like that. And obviously the cheerleaders are dancing, but they're also doing like physical yelling, cheers and, and chants and whatnot. And for contrast, this is actually one of the teams that was profiled in the docuseries Cheer on Netflix. This is one of the songs that they use for their routines, and it's completely different now. So tell us about that evolution right there specifically. I love that song. I love that got me interested in the first place. I was just a guy watching the show and I was like, what are they talking about? There's a line in there where the guy raps, uh, smells like chicken. And I was so confused. Like, why is this happening? I looked it up and it's this guy named Patrick Gavard. And he's been making cheer music since the 1990s when he was an athlete himself. He actually won the national title. Because the cheerleaders want such technical music for their routine. They love when they're working with a musician who can craft stuff just for cheer. So you have these really fast transitions. You notice the music is faster than that one in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Like the beats per minute has gone up by, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 or something like that, which actually translates to like much harder skills and much faster transitions. And it pulls a little bit from modern music. Like it sounds like something you might hear at an EDM festival, but it's so much faster and crazier. One of the interesting things that happened with the evolution of this cheer music is that it first started off kind of like how I mentioned remixes, other contemporary songs, and you'd make a mix and that's what it was. But once things really started to kind of get going, they had to follow the same type of copyright laws that a lot of other people follow. So there was a couple cases where people got sued for using music without having it properly licensed. And this is kind of what led it into this whole industry now, this cheer music industry or spirit music, I think they call it also, where they either have to properly license things. I know uh, Varsity Spirit is one of the big parent companies that does a lot of stuff with cheerleading overall. They sent down a rule that said only use covers, original music, just to get away from these possible lawsuits that you can get. Yeah, there was a guy I talked to in my article. He was actually the guy who made the music for the Bring It On movie. His name is Mark Bryan. And in 2014, he got sued and another cheer music producer got sued by Sony. Because back then, it was kind of the Wild West. Like, teams would include whatever the most popular music of the day was, except for they would remix it in these crazy high-energy ways. Like you said, Varsity, after the losses happened, Varsity is a massive company. They're worth $2 billion today. They don't want any part of getting sued by Sony Records. So they changed the rule and they said that uh, they buttoned it up. It's really impressive. In order to perform at a competition today, the cheerleading team has to literally turn in a physical copy of their music license to make sure that everything's on the up and up. As I mentioned, that kind of led to this whole thing of original cheer music. And even beyond that now with how technology has boomed some of these companies are offering web apps so that people can start working on their own music teams maybe could start putting together something on their own so it's really just kind of this evolution of the music itself and as i mentioned with the original songs things you can cater things to each individual team it's just this whole industry underground industry if you will that really only a lot of people in the cheer industry know about that's a great thing i mentioned that weird line tastes like chicken that was a rap that was written just for the navarro bulldogs and it was a reference to their rival who were called the Cardinals. And so the idea is, you know, they're in the middle of their routine. They're bragging about how they're going to 
eat up to all their competition. That's a line that, you know, I think was recorded just for them, just for that team, just for that season. It's a great look into it. I suggest everybody go out and read Duncan's piece on this because there's a lot of stuff that we just couldn't get to, but it is a, a fun industry to look into and the performances obviously need to match that high intensity energy and that's what it does there. Duncan Cooper, music journalist and former editor for The Fader, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.